Welcome to the Nourish, Eat, Repeat podcast, helping people who want to improve their health and change their mindset around food so they can live the life they were designed and called for. I am your host, Adrian Delgado, and in this podcast, I'll give you step-by-step action plans to reach your health goals, as well as my favorite recipes I know you and your family will enjoy. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Nourish, Eat, Repeat. Today we have a very special guest. I'm so excited for you to meet her. And we are going to be talking about a really important topic today. So Stacey Jones is one of our dietitians at Body Metrics. If you have not met her yet, you want to because she is just the sweetest person ever. And she really cares about her clients and um, and. Obviously, we have an intensive screening process before we bring anyone onto our staff. And and Stacy is just, we're just so thankful that she's with us. Today, we're actually talking about eating disorders. Specifically, how do we, um, how can we tell if a loved one is struggling? How can we tell if we're struggling? What are the signs, symptoms? Um, we're just going to go all into it because I feel like with the pandemic, with just heightened levels of anxiety and depression that we see in our office, this is just too big of a topic not to talk about. And unfortunately, we're seeing more and more cases in our office. So definitely want to educate you, um, the listeners, as well as what to look for. So Stacy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Stacy, we're excited you're here and we're ready for all the information and all your expertise. Uh, but before we jump in, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to fall into this the field of nutrition and then as well as this particular field? Yeah, great. So I love being a dietitian. Um when I was in college, I realized I wanted to be a dietitian. I didn't even know it was a career until about my sophomore year. And since then have been all in. So I've been a dietitian for about 13 years. Um, I worked inpatient and then I moved and started working at Penn State and was kind of thrown into the world of eating disorders with so many students struggling, especially on such a large campus. We serve a lot of students. Um, And so I fell in love with it. Um, It's very hard. It's very challenging. The individuals are really struggling, um, but they're really amazing individuals. And so helping them on their road to recovery has been um, an honor to get to walk beside so many different students. And um, now that I'm not in the college setting and I'm at body metrics, I see individuals of all ages, not just those particular college students. So it's been really awesome. It's also a field where you really have to collaborate with other care providers in order to provide provide good care. Um, And I love that collaboration across the board with other therapists and doctors and dietitians. Yeah, I know when somebody comes into our office, we're always like, who's your doctor? Who's your therapist? Like this is, we are not going to be your only support staff. We need a team. Absolutely. 
All right, so let's kind of jump right in and just go through kind of the ins and outs, the details. So Stacey, why don't we just start with just the beginning. What is an eating disorder? Yeah, so an eating disorder is a range of psychological disorders. There are a lot of different types. Um, typically, they're all characterized by a severe or persistent disturbance with eating habits or behaviors. Usually that's associated with a lot of distressing thoughts, poor body image. So some of the common ones most people have heard about are anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. But then there's some others that you may not have heard of. There's one called ARFID, which stands for avoidant restrictive, <clears throat> um, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. <laughs> a lot of letters. Um, and then there are some now also in the DSM-5, which is the um, manual that categorizes them where individuals might not struggle just with, just with bulimia or just with anorexia, but it's kind of a conglomerate of both. And so now there's specific criteria for that as well. Um, and they impact a lot of different areas of life. So really it's where the eating disorder just sort of keeps you from living life on a regular basis and it can have a physical, psychological, or social, it impacts your functioning for all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. What are some of the risk factors that increase the likelihood of developing an eating disorder? Yeah. So under those same kind of, um, they don't really know a cause for eating disorders yet, but what all evidence is pointing to is that it's kind of like a perfect storm. And there's a growing consistence that consensus that it's a range of biological, psychological, sociocultural factors that sort of develop an eating disorder. So under each of those categories, there are some kind of common risk factors. So for biological, um, they know that if you have a close relative who has some sort of mental health illness or an eating disorder, that in and of itself can increase your risk. Um, having a history of dieting. I can't tell you how many times I have spoken with individuals struggling and most of it started, you know, that was a big part for them. Not all, but a big part was they wanted to go on a diet, started losing a lot of weight, got to a certain low weight and things clicked in their brain. Um, and then they struggled more. Having an overall negative energy balance. So what that means is you're burning more calories than you're taking in. So maybe that's because you've been sick and not able to eat enough. Maybe that's because you're an athlete who just burns a ton of energy and you're just not able to feel your body well enough. Um, or maybe that's just from um, just restricting and not eating enough. Psychological, some of the risk factors, um, having a personality type of perfectionism is definitely one. Body image dissatisfaction, which that can look a whole host of ways. Um, having anxiety disorder, and then some of the ways that society definitely doesn't help and increases our risk factors is society has this weight stigma for sure. We see all these messages in the media of unrealistic expectations of how our body should look. That plays into it. Maybe an individual was teased or bullied a lot for how they looked, whether they were overweight or maybe they were much smaller than the rest of their peers. Um, Trauma is a big one. 
that is often associated, um, limited social networks. So I think we're seeing this a lot coming out of COVID where people just weren't able to connect. And so they're feeling very lonely. And that um, is another just impact. But it's really important to remember that eating disorders don't discriminate. So, you know, in the past, it was sort of the stereotype that it was a young white woman's disease. Um, but that's not the case at all. Like they impact individuals of all races and ages and genders and cultures and socioeconomic status and sexual orientation, body types, like anyone can have one. So if you see someone and you think in your mind, well, it doesn't fit that stereotype, that stereotype isn't actually accurate. Yeah. Yeah. I think you, you hit on so many really important topics. And some of those things like perfectionism, that type A personality, which we usually commend and we celebrate for being so driven, you know, actually puts you at a risk factor for other diseases. So it's kind of a fine line of what we celebrate and, and, you know, and the psychological part of how somebody could be really struggling, even though they're exhibiting sometimes these positive I don't know. Yes. Criteria. I don't know what the best way to say that is, if I'm making sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so a lot of it is when you're working with them on their road to recovery is if there's someone who is very driven and like they are all in when they're in, it's helping them funnel that into a positive way instead of letting their eating disorders sort of take over that part where they're trying almost it's like their eating disorders like, all right, well, you're all in with this and you're going to be the best one with all the eating disorders, although best isn't the right word to say, you know, but they're like following all the rules of what an eating disorder should do, like, you know, yeah. in a negative sense. Yeah. And then the other part that I wanted to highlight was just even the weight stigma from our society. I know we had a conversation a few days ago. Uh, apparently there was an article in the New York Post about this body image called heroin chic is back, yeah. which terrible. I mean, when you're using the word heroin in a glorified sense for something that kills, you yeah. know, so many people every year and making it into a positive light, like this is the body type now that we're all supposed to strive for. I mean, these, these poor, you know, these, these individuals that are already struggling with anxiety or loneliness mm -hmm. or depression or any of those things. And then to feel that pressure of having a certain body type that will never be attainable. Yeah. Like you said, it's kind of that perfect storm. It puts them in a tailspin and they're not quite sure how to. Yeah, exactly. Out. Yep. Oh, it's just, it breaks my heart. So let's talk more about what makes eating disorders so dangerous. Yeah. So eating disorders are act, are actually, um, they have a higher mortality rate than any other mental illness combined. Um, and it's because eating disorders affect every organ of the body. Um, and so when we think about that, if you're not eating enough and the body has to conserve its energy, that means its bodily systems are going to start to slow down. So like your heart rate's going to start to slow down um, and your when your muscles don't have enough energy, they're going to start to weaken and our organs, a lot of them are their muscles. So um, blood pressure slows down, heart rate slows down. And oftentimes that 
is overlooked because if someone is in really good shape, they're also going to have a low heart rate. Um, and so especially in individuals who are athletes, um, the doctors, if they're not well-versed in eating disorders and that's not one of their specialties, they'll tend to just say, oh, your heart rate is in the 50s, like low 50s, that's totally fine. Like you're just in really good shape um, and not even think twice that, well, maybe it's low because they're also not eating enough. Um, if when someone throws up a lot, it impacts our electrolytes. And so our electrolytes are things that are sodium, chloride. Um, and when those are impacted, they actually can cause irregular heartbeats and lead to heart failure. So those are things that individuals don't necessarily think about whenever they're throwing up all the time, how they're causing, how they're impacting their heart. Um, another organ in your body that is a muscle is your stomach. So when you're not feeding your body regularly and your stomach doesn't have to work regularly, um, it starts to slow down and it doesn't work as efficiently. And so then that can cause a lot of GI complications that are really um, uncomfortable and can be really severe. Binge eating is when you eat too much, you consume a large portion of food in an out of control manner in a pretty short period of time. And one of the consequences of that can be the stomach could actually rupture if you eat too much. So there are just so many different ways. Um, like I said in the beginning that eating disorders, they impact every single organ in your body. Um, and so I often tell my individuals, especially when they're having trouble with memory, um, that it's affecting their memory too, because all those, all those cells and that are supposed to be nice and smooth start to look like Swiss cheese with holes in them. Um, and then all those neurons can't transmit inner, tra cannot transmit all their thoughts and, and memories. And so they recognize that because they have a hard time either with schoolwork or with their work or um, remembering different things. Yeah. So that's some of what makes it so dangerous. Whereas other mental illnesses don't affect the body quite so much physically. Um, yeah, this one just has a lot of ramifications. Mm -hmm. And yeah. most people, because they're not thinking clearly, are yes. not thinking about their entire body and how that's going to show up for them years later. Right. Right. I remember working with a, a former bulimic who had... Um, a full set of dentures mm -hmm. in her thirties because of all the damage she did to her teeth from vomiting um, yeah. when she was in the throes of her disorder. So, you know, it's not just a, it's affecting me now. This is going to have potentially very long lasting effects. Yeah. And some of the things I had one individual fairly recently tell me, you know, when you first start restricting, you can still think clearly for a while. Like it's not until you get to a certain weight, like it takes time. And so this individual is like, had I known that I wouldn't be able to remember now, and I would be struggling so much with, you know, work, I would rever have reversed this so long ago. But, you know, by the time that that is impacted, it's been several months. And so you're already in the depths of struggling and it's not so easy to just reverse it. Yeah. So let's talk specifically signs and symptoms. What are the things that um, we should look for 
uh, mm -hmm. whether in, in ourselves or in our friends or family to know that they potentially may be struggling. Yeah. So I'm going to go through kind of a list of some signs and symptoms, but um, not every individual is going to struggle with all of them. So it's not per se a checklist as much as it is here's an overall idea of what it might look like. And some individuals might struggle with some and not with others. Um, and, you know, we often think that we can just look at someone and see if they have an eating disorder, but so much of what happens is going on inside your body that you can't see. Like you can't see how quickly someone's heart is beating or um, you can't, you, you might be able after a long time to see they have puffy cheeks from their swollen salivary glands from throwing up so much, but initially you might not be able to see that either. So um, some of these you can physically see and some you can't, some you experience. So a few common ones are, um, of course, increased anxiety around food. And so just in all senses. Maybe it's really hard for them to pick what to eat. You've noticed they're cutting out different foods. You've noticed that they don't want to eat with anyone anymore. So a lot of self-isolation. Um, you might see increased irritability. You know, most of us, won't, especially if you're hungry, you get kind of irritable. So if you're constantly hungry, they might be irritable a lot. Decreased body image. A preoccupation or obsession with food and body image in a way that gets in the way of their daily living, um, skipping meals. Like I said before, with the isolation, they might give a lot of excuses for why they can't eat with others. Um, weight changes. Sometimes you can see this, sometimes you can't. Especially if someone's losing weight, they'll often try and hide it. So they'll wear a little bit baggier clothes. So then sometimes that one you can see, sometimes you can't. They might complain of their GI or different stomach complaints a lot. Like, oh, well, I don't want to eat that because that hurts my stomach. Or they might go to the bathroom a lot after meals. They might always be cold, especially for those struggling with anorexia. When you get to a certain low weight, your body is just cold all the time. It doesn't have enough fat to insulate it. And so they're just constantly freezing. Um, evidence of food packaging at odd times. So this is one where students living in close quarters tended to see with roommates because if someone was struggling with binging, they would often do it when other people weren't around, but then maybe not dispose of all the evidence. And so roommates would be like, well, the food that I had in the fridge that I was planning on for tomorrow isn't there anymore. Okay. Or, um, they might, um, so they might find different food packaging um, the next morning that their roommate left. Um, difficulty concentrating, we talked about this one before with memory. I mentioned puffy cheeks from purging, or a lot of times um, when you purge, you have to make yourself throw up somehow, and a lot of people use their fingers. So on their knuckles, they'll just look different, like they'll be scratched and um, they might have marks on them. Um, so those are some of the things. And like I said, it's meant to be more of an overview of what someone might exhibit, not necessarily a checklist of they need to check all these boxes. Yeah, I remember um, I one of my friends in high school struggled with anorexia and it was so hard to tell in the beginning because she would tell her parents that she was going out to eat with her friends. 
which was true. We were going out to eat, but then we would go to the restaurant and she's like, oh, I ate at home already. And we'd be like, well, why? We were going out to eat. You knew that. She's like, oh, that's all right. I just decided to eat at home. So there was a lot of deceit yes. <laughs> and, and the stories that, you know, she told everybody to, to hide it. So, you know, in the beginning, it made sense. Like, oh, well, yeah, I'm going out to eat. So I wouldn't eat here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and then all of a sudden we're like, hold on a sec. This isn't making any sense. Um, but I remember in high school, that was my very first encounter with somebody. So I didn't know that she was struggling, like you said, until it was so much deeper and yeah. more involved. But I think it's great to have this in the back of our minds. So yeah. right. Awareness is always step one. Absolutely. Know how we can help someone. Yes. So I think that leads us to a really good question next, which is what is the difference between eating disorders and disordered eating? Because this feels like a really fine line. Um, you know, in some respects, I think any dieting can be qualified as disordered, disordered. eating. Yes. Um, so I would love to hear your take on the difference between the two. Yeah. So an eating disorder it's diagnosable. So if you were to go see a psychologist, it has very strict criteria in the DSM-5. Um, whereas disordered eating, maybe the individual doesn't meet enough criteria to be diagnosed with an eating disorder, but they still have habits that are getting in the way of their normal living. And so it's, it's a large continuum spectrum. You know, you might have disordered eating that's more mild and they're on a diet and it gets in the way a little bit, but it's not so severe. Um, or then you might have disordered eating that's like right up there with an eating disorder and maybe can't quite be classified, but yet it's still pretty severe and it's really impairing their ability to function um, in a normal capacity. Um, so, yeah. It's a hard question to answer, right? Because everything is on a yes. continuum. And so it's just really, it can make it really challenging of knowing when is it time to intervene? When is it time to just step back and let people do their thing and work through it? Um, I know for us too at Body Metrics, we have a lot of people that come to our office with disordered eating. And, yes. you know, on all levels and just really trying to help them walk through it. So it doesn't turn into an eating yes. disorder. Absolutely. Yeah. To catch it before it gets so severe. Correct. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about treatment options. What is available if somebody is struggling? Because I know that there's a whole range of options and not every option is necessary for every person. Yes, absolutely. So it's, um, think of it as like a stair step of levels. So at the first, at the bottom most level where you are reaching out, you need some help. Um, the first place most people go to would be to a psychologist, dietitian, physician, and that's on the outpatient level. So that's where we're at. We can see someone once a week. That's about the support that we give. Like once a week support is your outpatient level. Um, then you have your intensive outpatient program. So that those programs, they're nationwide. There's several really great ones. Being close to Philadelphia, um, there are actually a lot of 
eating disorder treatment facilities very close to us. So that's a good thing because in some parts of the country, there aren't. And so then individuals would have to go hours away from home or states away to get good care. But we do have some, quite a few um, facilities close. So intensive outpatient, it's usually about three days a week for about three hours at a time. And then you have partial, um, which is five day a week program. So kind of think like how you go to work or school for, you know, seven ish, eight hours a day. That's what a partial would be. You still live at home, but you go there during the day to get meal support for all three of your meals um, and do groups and see your dietitian there and be monitored medically there um, and have all counseling while you're there. And then there's a residential program. Typically, it's kind of like a house. The ones that I have toured, I've toured, I don't know, maybe four or five. They're pretty much always like a big house. Um, and so they try and make them feel cozy and individuals live there 24-7 for several weeks, however long it takes them to make progress to then be able to step back down to partial. And then they keep on working their steps all the way back to outpatient. And then the most critical would be your inpatient. So this is in a hospital, in a hospital bed, on a medical floor. Um, and this would be for individuals who are struggling the most. So oftentimes where I have um, seen this is with individuals with anorexia um, who are very, very low weight. Um, and so their heart rate is super low um, or someone who maybe um, restricts and purges. So that can be a really tough spot to be in where you restrict and then you binge and then you purge too. So you kind of do a combination of all of those. And so your electrolytes are always all out of whack. Um, that individual might be inpatient as well. But each of these programs have different criteria that you have to meet. And so they have a screening process and then a recommendation for what they would give you as to what you need. And sometimes, um, well, oftentimes, you know, if someone is really struggling, they might come in at one level and then try, you know, to see if they can make progress. And if it's just not working and they need more support, then they might go up a level and then get the, the care that they need and then eventually step back down through them. Yeah. Yeah. I think like you said, it's very important to, to know that you're not stuck at one level. So if no. you do end up needing a little bit more help in the beginning, the goal is to eventually work back down to um, as much independence as possible. Yes, yes absolutely. Because um, we don't want to do a disservice and keep you at a lower level if it's not helping you, because then you're not actually your, your road to recovery plateaus and, and we can't, we just can't help you more because you need more help. And so we want them to go get the more help that they need. And then we'll see them when they step back down and then help them. Yeah. So in terms of you personally, mm -hmm. what, what do you offer to clients? So I offer personally the outpatient level. So it looks like in their day-to-day -day life um, of going to work, going to school, doing extracurricular activities, having hobbies, having a family. Um, how can I best come alongside them and help them make goals to talk back to Ed 
And when I say ED, we often refer to the eating disorder um, as like its own identity as ED, like we give it a name. And so then they can, the individual can recognize that what ED says, they don't have to listen to because they have a voice too. And so helping them make their voice louder than Ed's. So that way they don't listen and they can talk back and they can use their tools and skills that help them on their road to recovery. And what about, say you're struggling, say a family member struggling, what, what is your role in that? Like, how do you support, so you, you see a dietitian, you have your doctor, you have a therapist, but you know, and if you're in the outpatient level, yep. let's keep it, let's uh, clarify. Um, but some of our, I feel like eating disorders affects the whole family. It's not just the individual. So what are the resources or what are the support for the family members who are watching their loved ones go through this or their friends go through it? You know, what are some things that they can do to help support that individual on their, their journey? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I support a lot of the parents. So if I'm seeing younger kids, then a lot of the care is also for the parents, like talking to them, letting them know what the goals are, letting them know how they can help and how they can be a support, giving them resources. There are some really great resources through NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorder Association. Um, they have a lot of different educational materials online. They also have um, different body image kind of resources. So, so even things, um, they call it body, body image activism. So even things that you can do to help prevent the eating disorder. Um, around here, there are several organizations that do have groups as well for family members. Um, like different groups that meet for an hour once a week to provide help provide support. So those are um, those kind of resources are things that I have learned about and found and so that I pass those on to the families that I work with so they can get some extra support. Um, and even just talking with them too. like I can, you know, have a Zoom call or a phone call or an email chain with a parent to help support them while I'm seeing their child too. Um, so, because you're right, there's a lot of family members and friends that are watching and the majority of them want to know how to help. And so one of the things I usually do with the individual is when we set goals, we talk about how they need a strong team. And, and oftentimes they don't want to have a strong team. They don't want to feel annoyed like they're annoying people or like they're burdening people. And so we talk a lot about, well, if they're, you know, when a good friend comes to them with the struggle, do they feel annoyed or do they feel burdened by that friend or do they want to be able to help their friend too? And so I try and put it back on them that way to help them see that people really do care about them and they want to help. And so they need to let them help. So then we often set goals too around like, okay, on Wednesdays when you, um, get home from school. Maybe you can eat a snack with this sibling who also just got home and is eating a snack too. And like, you can eat one and you can eat it together and it'll normalize it for you. Or maybe you, um, it's someone who 
is not restricted on exercise because that's not part of their eating disorder. And so what would be healthy for them is to begin doing some exercise. So maybe they find an exercise buddy, like a friend that they can go to the gym with. So I try and help them set goals that include some of their loved ones around them. You know, they ask permission first. I'll be like, well, do you think that friend would want to get lunch with you on Wednesday? So I kind of know I'll reach out and see. Um, but it lets those other people in. So that way in their lives, things that feel easy for them, like eating lunch, can then help the individual who lunch is a really hard thing to do. And so if they can do it with someone who already is doing it and normalizing it, it can just like help take that step and give those family members and friends um, some direction on how do I help. Right. No, that's really, really helpful because I can imagine most people are like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And so then they say nothing, which then could translate into apathy when really they're just scared. They they, yeah. don't, they don't want to make it worse. So they don't know how to help. Right. So teaching the individual how to advocate for themselves, ask for help. And yeah. then also, I love how it can be such a collaborative movement. Yeah. So what's the recovery prognosis? Um, you know, is this something that, you know, is fixable, quote unquote? Is this something that the person's going to struggle with forever? Like, what does the timeline look like? Yeah. So that's a tough question to answer because there are um, researcher, researchers and, and practitioners on both sides of that. So some people say, yes, full recovery is possible. Some people say, no, I don't think it is. I think it's something you always struggle with. Um, I have seen both. I have seen some individuals who really, like in the four years I saw them, I saw them go through the whole thing and were at a point where they were doing so marvelous. Um, and then I've seen other individuals who, after a long period of time, they were doing better and they found their voice but they still, Ed was still there. He was just in the background and quiet enough that they could override him, but he was still there. So I think I'd, I think it's different for every individual. One thing we do know is the sooner you can reach out when you start struggling, the better. Be, because just like any other habit, the longer you do it and the longer you listen to all those lies, and the longer your voice is tied in with Ed's, the harder it's going to be to separate them and to believe actually what's true about you and not what Ed says. So the sooner someone can reach out, the better. And I, I used to always tell, especially when I would give presentations for our college students, we, you know, because it's so hard for someone who's struggling to reach out for help, um, because most of the time they don't think that they are struggling or need help. Um, Oftentimes it takes that really brave family member or friend stepping up for them and being like, I'm really concerned about this person. Like, I'm really concerned about you. Please let's go talk to someone. Um, but that can be really hard to be, to be brave. And so I used to tell them any way that you can get them to come in the door. Like if they are struggling with all this GI stuff and they're totally over it and they're willing to go to a doctor for the GI stuff, go to the doctor for the GI stuff. If they are um, willing to see a dietitian because we feel a little bit less scary maybe than a doctor's office, then come see us. If they are so overwhelmed with anxiety 
and they're not necessarily ready to talk about food, but they're ready to talk about how it might be impacting other areas and they were, are willing to see a psychologist, go see a psychologist. Like whichever area you're willing to reach out to, reach out to and make that first step. And then hopefully also the people you're reaching out to can then help connect you and start you on your road um, to recovery with the rest of those support and resources that you need. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So reaching out to someone you trust, mm -hmm. um, obviously you said the NIDA, that the, those resources yeah. are available online. So the National Eating Disorder Association, mm -hmm. um, you can always call body metrics, right? Absolutely. Yep. Make an appointment, even just call and talk to us, you know, call and talk to me if you're worried about someone and you just don't even know how to approach them. Yeah. Just call and we'll chat about it. Yeah. Or yeah, just even, I don't know if they need services, but I just yeah. kind of got to talk it through with somebody that has yep. more expertise in this area. What is my next step? Yep. Yeah. We're here to help. Um, Absolutely. It's, it's a tough road, but like you said, the earlier you catch it, the better the prognosis, the easier the treatment closer yeah. to home, um, yes, which exactly. is what everybody wants. Everybody's mm -hmm. we want to support yeah, that individual as best as we can, um, with as little, with, with, I, I don't want to say like craziness, cause that's, that's not the word I want to use, but with a, as little chaos as possible and disruption yeah. to the normal routine. Yeah. Yes. So Stacey, this was so incredibly informative and helpful and compassion filled. And I'm just so thankful for the work you do because this is not easy work. Yeah, thanks. So Stacey, we always end our episodes with a recipe. And since you are our guest, you get to share with our listeners today. Awesome. So um, the recipe I thought of is one that has been a go-to for me lately, and it's super easy. So I just take one or two hard-boiled eggs and mash it together with about a half of an avocado and put a little squirt of lemon juice and a little bit of salt, and then you can put it on toast. You can eat it with crackers. You can eat it plain, throw a side of fruit with it, and you have a pretty well-balanced meal with your carb, your protein, your lipid, and your fruit. Um, so it's just their hard-boiled eggs and avocado mashed together with a little lemon juice and a sprinkle of salt, and then put it on some sort of whole grain something, toast, crackers, English muffin, whatever. That could be a good breakfast. That could be, yes. you know, if some substantial, you can, you can make that lunch. You can turn that into yep. a snack and sounds very filling. Uh, we do something very similar and our whole family enjoys it. So it's not yeah. a hardship to, to sell that idea. Yeah. It's quick and easy. That's the most important part. We need quick yes. and easy. <laughs> yes. Otherwise it doesn't happen. No, we do not want long, complicated recipes. Just tell me what's easy. Let's get the job done and move on. That's right. I'm with you 100%. So, all right, Stacey. Well, just thank you again for your time, for your knowledge, and for your caring um, about the people in our community. Um, that's our episode for today. As always, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Nourish Eat Repeat podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please rate, review, and share with others so we can reach and help more people. For more information about nutrition, how to work with a dietitian, 
or about any of our programs, visit our website at bodymetricshealth.com. You can also find us on socials. We're on Instagram and Facebook at bodymetricshealth. The book Nourish Eat Repeat is available on our website and Amazon in both paperback and ebook versions. Once again, I'm Adrian Delgado, and I'll see you next week.